little trick people do. If you're a YouTube watcher or even maybe Instagram, there's this thing where, you know, YouTube creators, they will record like seven videos in a day and all they'll do is, you know, change wardrobe and then release it over a period of time. So you think, oh yeah, they did this all different days, but actually they did it all in one day. Welcome non-traditional fam to our YouTube journey. (laughs) You're not supposed to tell them that. We're supposed to pretend like we waited a week to record this. You know what? I thought about it and I was like, oh, we should not tell the audience. We should just be like, yeah, fresh, you know, hey, new week, new us. (laughs) (laughs) But let's be honest. It is a busy time for Jen and I in the non-traditional world. So we are actually recording this. If you're listening to it, you're listening to a week later, but we are recording this intro to the new episode the same week as last week's. Yes. And if you're listening right now, I live in LA. Wow. <laughs> you know, God willing. I hope that like this all goes well. But yeah, I'm li- I'm living in LA right now. Mm, spoiler, or I guess not spoiler, like real time. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, right? It's weird, like trying to like figure out the timing and stuff. But again, so Jen is in the middle of the big, big move across country. I'm in the middle of returning back to work and trying to juggle how I remain being a podcaster and working the film business and working, you know, 90, 100 hour weeks. But we are doing it, we're hanging in there and we love our non-traditional family so much that we are going to by hook or by crook, figure out how to keep it going. So Jen- 100 hour work week, I'm gonna throw up. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yikes. Welcome to the film business. It's so glamorous, guys. Don't you wanna be a part of it? (laughs) Speaking of the film business, who's our guest this week? The one and only Michael Goy. Legend. Um, The first thing I'd like to say about this interview is do not listen to it because I listened to it and I literally did not interview this man. I just fangirled for like 40 minutes. So I'm embarrassed. So go ahead and shut the podcast off right now and then get to like three minutes from the end and we'll outro you and that's it. And then we'll outro you. (laughs) But for anyone who doesn't know, Michael Goy is an episodic television director. He directs a lot of the American Horror Story world and some shows on the CW. So look him up, check out his IMDb. And um, this was a very special one for me, not only because he does work in my business, but he sort of spoke about some views that I've had and how it is with such high pressure jobs that we have, you create a life work balance. So not going to say anything else. Jen, listen to the episode. You're going to listen to the episode. We're all going to listen in and we'll hit you up on the backside for the outro season. Michael, welcome to the non-traditional podcast. We are so happy to have you on today. Thank you. So for our listeners who may not know what you do, obviously we've brought you here because we admire your work and are big fans. Tell us who you are, what you do, and how you move through this world. Well, my name is Michael Goy, and um, I've been a cinematographer for over three and a half decades. I've shot uh, shows like American Horror Story, Glee, My Name is Earl, um, a whole bunch of them. And in the last five or six years or so, I've uh, been doing a lot of directing 
um, and successfully so. So I, I still feel sort of like I'm a cinematographer masquerading as a director, but <laughs> my agents and managers would say otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure uh, they would. Well, we like to kind of start a little bit earlier in our guest lives um, on our show. So when you were growing up, what was the first thing you wanted to do? When I was seven years old, I went to a, uh, a birthday party a friend of mine was having, and he was showing eight millimeter movies on the wall uh, projected, you know, on, on his film projector. And it was the first time I'd seen a strip of film. And I, I was just staring at the film going into the projector and seeing all the still photographs and, and how they moved on the screen. And it was just like magic. And from that point on, I, I really wanted to be a filmmaker. Wow. And when I told my parents when I was eight years old, because they asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to go to Hollywood and I want to make movies. And they said, well, then that's what you should do. You know, and, and we had very little money. You know, it's, it's, we're in Chicago and, and nobody in the family is even remotely a filmmaker. Um, but they encouraged me to dream big and got me my first used eight millimeter camera. And, um, so I just started shooting and I never really stopped, you know, up until I think about 10 years ago, my, I think my parents still thought that I was making movies in the backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I think you might be our first guest who their first response is the career they actually saw out. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's really great. And just kind of going in on that, because I'm in the film industry as well, but I had a completely different experience when I went to my parents and said, I want to do, I want to work in film and television. They said, no, get a real job, (laughs) you know? So what do you think? I mean, I was so passionate about film and television. I just wanted to do it. So even though I went to school to study computer engineering, because that was sort of, you know, something I could make money at, quote unquote, I still had this film at the back of my head and I decided to pursue it no matter what. But what do you think parents' roles are in our careers and our lives? Do you think they play a role in support sometimes or like, how do you see that? Oh, yeah. No, parents and family are number one. I mean, they they have a huge influence in, in your life and in your ability to, I think, pursue the career that you're going after. Nobody makes it on their own without any kind of emotional support. It's, it's, it's really impossible to make it happen that way and come out of it fully balanced and, and feel like, you know, you're, you're an actual human being. So that, that support and that encouragement is, is really, really vital. And, you know, and both of my parents, even though they were both born in California, um, you know, they were put into to internment camps during World War II. You know, my dad was in three camps. My mom was in two camps. So for people who had lost all of their property, all their possessions and all their liberty to raise myself and my sister by saying, you know, you can be anything you want to be is really huge. It's really yeah. bold. So, yeah. you know, that is really the reason why I am who I am today. Wow. I think it's incredible because I think it just really does pivot to Anastasia's family where it's like, no, because of what I've gone through, you absolutely need to get something that's going to protect you for the rest of your life. What what do you think it is about your parents that shifted that and said, you know, we're here, we made it through all of that. Do what you want to do. Well, they, they believe in, and they're still alive. My dad is 95 years old. My mom is 92 years old. You know, they believe in America. 
and they believe in the American dream and they always believe that, uh, you know, nothing is out of your reach if you really commit to it and you give a hundred percent to making it happen, you know? So that's just, yeah, that's really awesome. Um, so, you know, you get this career, you're working in film and television. You say you started as a cinematographer, but you're now known, at least your agents will tell you, (laughs) you're, you know, a director. How does that transition happen? I think a lot of times, especially in our business or even in other businesses too, when you're known as something, it's really hard to say, well, now I'm doing this other thing um, and I'm doing it well. How did you make that transition to have people trust you as a director? You know, the, the transition actually happened alarmingly easy, and, and I know that's a really annoying to a whole bunch of my friends who are struggling to, to make it a, a career as directors. And, and um, you know, there are a couple of things that I did, I think, that were, that were wise. Um, you know, even though I had shot hundreds of episodes of, of television and uh, over 50 feature films, you know, when I started to get serious about a directing career, you know, and this is after I had directed four episodes of American Horror Story, which is a show that I shot also for five years. Um, I figured, okay, well, I, people need to kind of reset their thinking in terms of me as a director. So I enrolled, uh, I applied for the Warner Brothers Directors Workshop, which is one of their diversity programs. All the studios have their diversity inclusion programs, and this was Warner Brothers. And they accepted me in the program. They they did say, you know, why are you applying <laughs> to this director's workshop? Don't you think we'll just go ahead and put you on a director's list if we knew you wanted to direct? And I said, I don't want to do that. You guys have a pipeline established that gets directors into the episodes of television that you produce. That's what I want to do. I want to go through the process. So I did. And they started immediately calling me to direct episodes of, of television. They had spots open for like Pretty Little Liars and Famous in Love and Shadow Hunters and things like that. And so when once I finished the season of American Horror Story and I could actually take some of those jobs, I accepted those jobs. And then that led to other jobs with Fox and Universal and Disney ABC. And, and it just kind of took off like a rocket. But it was an easy transition for me because I... My priority when I was a cinematographer was to make sure that the directors and the actors had enough time to get the performance. So I knew how to to do the shortcuts in terms of my cinematography when I saw that the actor was ready to go. And the actors recognized that that was my priority. And that's why I've always gotten along really great with actors because you know it's it's just finding that balance everything is important but at the end of the day you can't walk away without the performance right yeah. right i mean i i know you say because i've i i listened to um a little presentation you gave and i know you say you had it easy but i have to believe that you know some of the work like you just described that you did while you were a cinematographer were was the reason why it was easy for you it's not like you know you just turned on a switch and then they were like sure he can direct but i feel like some of the work you did as a cinematographer made it easier for people to see you as a director which i think is important it certainly clarified for me the entire process and what everybody's role in in everything is and um you know i believe that um 
you know, you need to, to be aware on set, regardless of your position, you kind of need to be aware of everything that's going on and, and not kind of just what your sphere of, of things are in order to be an effective contributor, because that's, that's when you can suggest things that might save time, might save money, might uh, create a better environment, you know. So, yeah, certain, certainly my years as a cinematographer helped. And, and my, my few years as an editor, originally I wanted to be an editor, you know, but uh, I, I decided I didn't want to spend my entire professional career sitting by myself in a little room. <laughs> so I became a cinematographer. It is tough. Yeah. Now, when you align with someone like Ryan Murphy and you're able to work on these big projects, do you have any moments of doubt at that point in your career or you're somebody who is fully in their power knowing they could handle the obstacles? I mean, your resume is not short. Are there still concerns that far into your career? Are you kind of showing up being like, I know what I'm doing here? I live in a constant uh, state of doubt. Mm. Uh, constant. And I, I really think it's the only way you can really succeed and push the envelope is if you're constantly unsure if you're making the right choice. And, and I, I learned that largely, you know, from cinematographers who uh, I had met or whose work I had seen or read interviews with, you know, like Conrad Hall. Conrad Hall, amazing cinematographer, shot, you know, in Cold Blood and American Beauty and so many movies, um, would always fret on the first day of shooting because he didn't know what he was going to do. And I feel like, you know, you, you have to constantly put yourself on the edge of not knowing if what you're thinking of is going to work in order to break new ground. And the thing about that is, is that if it works, it's not the end of the line. It's the beginning of the line, because then it leads to two other things that you've never done before. And then that leads to two other things you've never done before. So I like, I embrace uh, that unpredictability um, as much as I can. I never go with my first idea. That's like a rule. I'm sorry. I have to stop. I have chills. I can't even deal right now. I'm so sorry to disrupt the interview like this. I just, first of all, you're speaking to my heart because there's just so much going on. And also I just, wow. I just feel like that's such a word because I think that we always feel like we'll feel like we've made it. And you're, like I said, your resume is (laughs) enormous and there's so many people that respect your work. Um, and I just think like, I'm, I'm a singer. I'm like in the middle of a couple of contracts right now. And I just, I'm nervous about so many things and it's just knowing that even you show up on the job and you're like, I don't know if this is it. And people are marveling at your work is really incredible. So I just needed to stop and say that. Well, you know, carry on. That's not to say that you should go in unprepared because I go in immaculately prepared. Of course. I'm really, really prepared as a cinematographer and a director, but I'm so prepared that I can throw away all those ideas and pick up a new one if, if something is happening, you know, and that's, that's what you need to be able to do. Mm, I love it. And Anastasia and I are, we like to be prepared as well. So <laughs> I don't, I yeah. think it is, it is just knowing, it is just knowing that even the best of the best have their doubts because, and not know, not thinking of that as a flaw is really where you drove the point home for me is thinking that is almost a strength because you're never going to, like you said, go with your first idea necessarily. You are going to always strive to be the best. And there is that like edge of your seat kind of excitement when you get to the first day of work or the first day of, of, of the screening, you know, and like, did this really pan out? You know what I'm saying? All right, so 
Anyway, carry on. Then it's not asking any more questions. I'm just like really, I'm like not even an interviewer right now. I'm literally a spectator. <laughs> um, but yeah, kind of following in on that note, as creatives, I feel sometimes, you know, we come at a project wanting to succeed, wanting to do something innovative. Sometimes we come at it with, what can I do? What is the gimmick? What is the little thing that I can do to make this special? But you said something in the last seminar, which is now one of my favorite Ackner, um, Ackner, Ackner, uh, I can't say the word right now, but you said (laughs) kiss, keep it simple, stupid. How do you feel about that? Being someone who is creative and, you know, you want to try something new. You want to show people things that they've not seen before, maybe. How do you um, weigh those two things out? Yeah, but, you know, there's a really thin line between the things that work and the things that are catastrophically wrong. And really where where it the dividing line becomes, and this is, is speaks to everybody's individual style, you know, everybody's obsessed with what is my style, what it, what is it that's going to make my work distinctive. And it's really in you and your life experiences. And when you read that script, how you think that character feels and how you want to depict the world the way the character feels it. Not not necessarily in the way that's the most beautiful, not in the way that's predictably, okay, you know, this we'll get a nice wide shot here and then we'll get a medium shot here. But climbing into the head of the character, understanding how that character feels at that moment in the script, and then finding ways to visually depict the world the way the character feels it. And that's that's what I've always done. I, it's what I do as a director. It's what I've always done as a cinematographer. And it makes the difference because everybody is going to approach it then in a different way. You know, you, you only start to get generic material when when you just watch a whole bunch of stuff and then you feel like you should be repeating it regardless of whether or not it fits for that character in that moment, you know? So you, you want to kind of avoid those things. And then, so in terms of pressure of knowing what to do or, or whatever, it's, it's really discoveries. It's a constant series of discoveries because when you, when you get into the character, and this is why I love talking with the actors, you know, the ones that people warn you about because they'll question everything. I love the actors who question everything because it leads to a thought process and a conversation that's deeper than what the surface is going to be. You know, and that's what I want. I want to to find out what is in that actor's head in terms of how they think that character is reacting in that moment and why. And then what do I do visually to to help that, you know? Mm. So you're not going for a path of least resistance. You're going through. That is the path of least resistance. For <laughs> I mean, me. in, the, in the end, but, you know, most people are like, don't talk. You know, she's a diva. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I've never had a bad relationship with an actor. Never. And that's that's a huge part of your success, I'm sure. I mean, I, I need to backtrack a bit because I want to talk about, I uncoincidentally binged the first few seasons of American Horror Story at the beginning of quarantine. And I just want to say, how dare you? I was traumatized. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, great, great, great work, obviously. But I just, wow, that, that, that is definitely a head trip, that, that whole series. <laughs> and also a series like that, you know, it's such a visual, I mean, of course we, we 
you work in a visual medium, but the style of it is so specific to a specific artist who is Ryan Murphy, for example. How do you work with someone who has such a specific vision of how they want something to look? Is it sort of collaborative? Do you just try and find your way to insert yourself into that world? Well, the specificity of the vision is something that we arrive at through conversation, through interaction. Uh, you know, the, the spark of inspiration that comes for, from Ryan for what the tone of the series is going to be for that season is always with, with Ryan and Brad Falchuk. And then I take that, and, and this is the other half of it, is they gave me tremendous freedom, tremendous freedom to interpret it in the way that I thought it should be. You know, and then and, and it's that constant dialogue and that that freedom to contribute that that creates something like that. And you know, the thing about a, American Horror Story, people always say, well, stylistically, it's it's very daring and stuff like that. But it wasn't the the approach wasn't any different than what I did on Glee. It wasn't any different than what I did on My Name Is Earl or, or Invasion or any of the other shows that I shot. It's just that, you know. With American Horror Story, every single character was mentally or emotionally dysfunctional in some, you know, radical way, in, in some way that's really unique to, to them. And so climbing into the head of the character and then visually depicting the world as the character feels it or sees it, you're climbing into the heads of crazy people. And that turned into the style of American Horror Story. And it was the simplest way to do it. It was the simplest way to 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 get a visual representation of how they felt. Right, right. Should I ask Jonathan's question? Yeah. Okay, I have a question from one of our listeners and our friend um, who is also in the film industry. He works on costumes, and I thought it was a really great question. It's a bit of a mouthful, but bear with me, um, and I will read it just so I don't get anything wrong. Okay, so he said, something that I always think of as an artist is a quote from Diana Vreeland, the eye has to travel. I heard that back when I was in ninth grade and have always tried to apply that. Whether I'm painting and moving colors around a canvas or watching a film and paying attention to what grabs my eye, what stimulates me, what captivates me. And when it comes to film and TV, I tend to believe that's the job of the cinematographer. What's their process to get the eye to travel? How do they create captivating storytelling through movement? And how do you continue to come up with new ways to draw the viewer in? Well, movement or lack of movement says something. Um, I've never been a fan of, of moving the camera either on a steady camera or a dolly or a crane when there was no kind of justification for it to move. You know, so what what is it that the camera move is telling me about the character or where is it bringing me? What is it revealing to me that I, I otherwise wouldn't know as effectively in any other way? And that's what motivates movement for me. So um, if you see, you know, my work on American Horror Story, uh, the movements are, are very deliberate and they have a specific purpose. It's never just moving just for the sake of moving. Uh, there's one scene that um, in Asylum, season two, where where the camera comes out from behind Sarah Paulson's head because the, the director, Alfonso Gomez Rayon, wanted to get some sense that that we were coming through her thought processes and approaching these two detectives who are speaking at this table because they're talking about they think that her son that she gave up at birth was the bloody face killer, 
you know, mm-hmm. and they're showing her photos and then they're asking, have you ever seen this man before? And she's lying because she has. And she says, no, I haven't. So we need to see the photos. We need to establish the two, two detectives because this is the first time we've seen them. We need to get some sense that we're coming out of uh, Sarah's head, you know, and from her thought processes. And we need to get the feeling that her world was turning upside down. And Alfonso and I talked and we said, let's literally turn the camera upside down. So we came out from behind her head. We detectives are talking. We kept turning upside down and then we slid underneath the glass table. And that's where we see the photos of Dylan. So it's, it's, it was the simplest way (laughs) to get all of those story beats done. But, you know, when you incorporate the fact that you, you are dealing with all of these things, these storytelling elements that you have to tell, that became the way that was the most concise way to put it across. I'm not even in the film industry and I'm geeked. So I don't know. I don't even know what you're feeling, Anastasia. I'm geeked out right now. I remember that scene. (laughs) If you haven't seen that scene, go watch that scene because once you, it's, you know, you watch it and you're mesmerized by it. And I feel like it's one of those scenes you watch and you don't even think, oh, the camera's moving and then it's doing this. Like you just, it just makes sense. So hearing you explain it, it's it's just yeah it's a lot <laughs> no and and that's the thing is is that you know it's sometimes hard to excerpt things because it looks so bold and audacious but when you're in the world when you're binge watching the show you know when you're plugged into what the show is is feeding to you everything fits within within that framework and and uh the the only time i you know i i argue with with maybe another cinematographer is when you know they feel like they should be doing this because it's it that's the way it exists in nature like the light always comes from the windows and and I've always felt like I don't care what reality is my job is not to replicate reality my job is to create the reality that works for the show that we're doing as long as I stay true to that yeah, I just chatted with a friend about uh, The Shawshank Redemption, and it's my favorite movie. And the they were talking about how the lockbox where the cash was kept and the bank books were kept, it was filmed from the other side. And there were all these constraining shots because they were in a prison. And I've watched that movie so many times, and I never thought about it. It's just something that I felt when I was watching the movie. I felt like I was in a prison, but never knew that that was to do with the cinematography and the direction. And that's what you do. And I think your description of that scene with Sarah Paulson is exactly that thing where I don't necessarily remember the camera going upside down, but I remember being like, this is a wild scene. And that you evoked that feeling from me without even like, I mean, uh, it's just incredible. I have, I have no words. I'm done. I mean, I don't even have questions. I'm just here to, to listen. You guys go ahead. <laughs> Jen's still at the interview, but she's listening now. Um, how do you approach working with um, other people? I think sometimes, you know, when someone has an idea, it's like, this is the idea and this is what we're doing. And there's no sort of, you know, leeway. How do you approach working with other people in a creative world? I play well with others. I mean, uh, you know, I, because I came up through crew, you know, I was an electrician originally and, and um, I respect the fact that people have creative contributions that they can make if they're in an environment where it's encouraged for them to do so. 
So, you know, I, 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 and I understand that people look at me like Michael's got it all figured out, but you know, as they work with me, they, they find that, yeah, I'm, I may have something all figured out, but I will take a great idea, you know? So I want people to, to come to me with their ideas. You know, when, when I finish blocking a scene with the actors and they go off to make up touch-ups, I get the entire crew, the onset crew together. And I walk through every single setup. I said, okay, I think there's seven shots here and this is what they are. And I walk through every single one of them. And then the director of photography and the, uh, the camera operators and I get together and the camera operator may say, Hey, you know, those two shots that you had over here, if we put in a 12 foot piece of track, we can make it one. And then you have a move that pushes into her face at that moment. I was like, great. Let's do that. So it's 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 this process of discovery, you know. Uh, your your shot lists, and I'm a firm believer in shot lists, but I'm a firm believer in not looking at the shot list. The shot list is a reminder of the story and what's important to to remind yourself about in the story, but it's not the end all, and you have to react off the human element, which is you know the actors and the director and the dynamic that's happening in that moment. Also, um, something you put on a slide in your seminar, um, you said there's no such thing as bad lighting. And right. when I first read that, I thought, you know, the way I saw it too is like maybe there's no such thing as a mistake or a bad idea almost. How do you, how do you approach things like that? Like things that, you know, oh, this is a mistake, but you could maybe get something from it or, Oh, that's not a great idea. Like, is it all great ideas? All bad ideas? You know, there are there are ideas. There are ideas. You know, the the worst thing you can do is suppress ideas, uh, whether they're appropriate or not, because those are ideas are are things glimpses of inspirations that you could potentially use in another project under another circumstance. And what I said, there's no such thing as bad lighting. What I was saying is is that most often when people remark that the lighting seems bad, it's not the actual physical lighting that's bad. It's just that it feels inappropriate for the, the what they're watching, for the scene that they're watching. But you take that same lighting situation and put it under a different context in a different show or whatever, and all of a sudden it becomes incredibly relevant. So you need to be able to have your mind open enough to accept the fact that, you know, things can come a little bit out of left field, but if it feels right, and this is something a director told me, he said, you know, the, the, the difference between you as a cinematographer and other cinematographers he's worked with was that at some point I will put a light somewhere that makes absolutely no logical sense, but it will feel amazing for that moment. And that's what I'm, I'm going for. I'm going for what, what makes the audience feel what I need them to feel in this moment, you know, and, you know, sometimes it it just takes, well, all the time, (laughs) it takes just broadening your outlook on things. Right. So during the course of your career, is there a time that you failed that, uh, you may have brought you to your current success. You wouldn't be where you are without that moment. Well, um, you know, I don't feel like I've quite made it yet. You know, I, I wake That's up every madness. day hoping that I get somewhere. Uh, honestly, um, it's, 
and I, I think that's part of the uh, part of the requirement for for actually succeeding is is never feeling like you've gotten there yet. But you know, there's certainly been turning points, you know, in my life and my career. A big turning point for me was when I met my wife Gina, because to have somebody that was so supportive to that encouraged me to make bold choices in my career and not necessarily what people would say would be the smart choice, you know, but, you know, I mean, she's the one when I was miserable on a show and it was a hit show, you know, and they were asking me if I was coming back for the next season. She's the one who said, don't do it. You know, you, you, we see that you're miserable and, and, and you, I see the way you walk in the door every night after filming and it's not worth it. And I said, well, we just came off of a strike industry strike. And I said, if I turn down this job, there will be nothing, you know, there will literally be nothing. And she said, fine. She said, you know, you're a good writer, take three or four months off, write a script, you know, we're doing okay financially, just, but don't go back. So I followed her advice, you know, and I didn't go back to that show. And that led to me getting hired on on a freeform uh, ABC family show called The Nine Lives of Chloe King, which was a one-hour episodic uh, takes, takes place almost entirely at night, 16-year-old heroine, really fun show to, to work on. And because I was shooting a one-hour episodic, Glee was looking for another cinematographer to alternate, you know, because the freeform didn't do conventional seasons. So when they finished, all the rest of the shows were booked, but Glee needed somebody to alternate with Chris Baffa, who was the cinematographer on the show. So I got that interview. And then after, you know, six, seven episodes of, of Glee, they yanked me off and threw me on American Horror Story. So, you know. What a year. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, that was a turning point, uh, you know, just having that relationship with, with my wife and being able to uh, make decisions that, that weren't rooted in, well, you know, you're the head of the household, you're the man, you've got to work, you've got to work, work. No, you have to, you have to make smart choices that feed your soul as well, because that's what leads you to where you need to go. Yeah, I mean, I know we, I, know, I just want to dig into that a little bit more, because I know we talked about familiar relationships with parents, and how they can support you. But I am curious to know, somebody as driven as yourself, and we see so many tumultuous relationships in the industry and I have so many friends that work in film and they're working 80 hour work weeks plus and I just I've seen the detriment it has on relationships what how do you find that balance um in a partner you know a romantic partner because it's one thing not being able to see your parents but twice a year but it's another thing not being able to see your spouse um how do you balance that and and maybe yeah I'd love to just know like what how you find the the, the balance of career and success and relationship well, Gina knew what my life was like at the time we met, you know, that I was traveling a great deal. But uh, when we got serious in our relationship and we got serious about having a family, you know, and she got pregnant with our first child, I, I made the commitment that I was not going to take work uh, off the continent, off, off of, you know, I would, I would work in, in the United States, Mexico and Canada. I would work anywhere where I could fly home on the weekend. You know, so for, for 12 years, I've flown home every single weekend to be with my, my wife and kids. And because I never wanted my children to wonder when daddy was going to be home. You know, they had to know that every Saturday, you know, at 
11 a.m., Daddy's going to get off the plane. We're going to pick him up at the airport, and we're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. We go. You can't now. Chuck E. Cheese is gone. But, um, but uh, you know, they had a schedule then, you know. So, you know, and my accountant was like, you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on coach flights to fly home every weekend after, after filming all night long on a Friday night. You get on a 6 a.m. flight. And I said, yes, because that 18 hours that I spent at home is what keeps me sane. So there's no question for me, family is number one. You, you know, you will never remember the job that you turned down to keep a promise to your kid to be there for their baseball game or their piano recital, but they will always remember if you promised and you didn't show up. So it's not, it's not a matter of balance really for me. You know, my agents and managers know who's number one. And that's my family. That's, I mean, you might've already answered the question, but, you know, kind of in our career, especially um, maybe in business and finance as well, there's this strive to sort of like, you know, work, work, work. You've got to be successful. You know, you hear the term, we'll sleep when we're dead kind of thing. Um, how, but it seems like you have found a way to get that life work balance or at least make sure that life is what's the most important for you. You have to have a life. You know, in any business that you're in, you have to have a life outside of your business. And the film industry is is kind of all-consuming. You know, if you let it be, it will it will just eat up your entire existence. You will read a Hollywood reporter instead of a book. You know, you'll put on virtual reality goggles instead of actually going to the Grand Canyon. You know, uh, but when you cut yourself off from the rest of the world, the world who doesn't care about motion pictures or television or about this schedule or this budget and stuff, when you cut yourself off from the real world, then you cut yourself off from all of the inspiration that you're going to need to create the things that are going to elevate you as an artist, as, as a commercially viable artist. You have to have life experiences. It's part of, it's a big part of the, the entire composition of you as somebody who is successful in this business is having a life. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I mean, interview um, over. Right. <laughs> um, you, you may have already answered this in, in, a, in a number of ways because of your prolific responses, but um, what does abundance mean to you? Abundance? It's like, like, <laughs> Yo, listeners are gonna laugh. They're gonna cry. This interview is it. Yeah, like Charlie Chaplin and, and exactly in exactly. the Gold Rush and you know, doing the dance <laughs> with the, the bread bowls. Oh my god! I don't know if I can recover from that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you can answer actually both. What abundances and abundance? Yeah, you know, abundance is you know usually not something that I can apply to. Uh, you know, any, any kind of uh, thing in a professional sense, it, it really is, is comes to me in a family sense in terms of, you know, the way my kids feel about me, the way I feel about them. Um, the way that, uh, you know, one, one of my grips told me one time, he said, you know, I have never heard you say a single negative thing about your parents in the 45 years that I've known you. He says, that says a lot you know, and it really is. I mean, I think the world and my family, you know, my entire family. So 
that that is the the abundance of emotion and life and things that actually mean something to me you know i i do love the industry i love my job i'm very good at my job but it is my job you know it's not my life i know the difference between the two yeah that's awesome um lastly i mean this whole interview has been advice but if there's someone coming up, you know, maybe wants to be a cinematographer, maybe wants to be a director, um, do you have any advice for them coming up, you know, wanting to pick up a camera, do something? Sure, they should do it. <laughs> like Eli Wallach says in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you know, he says when, when the guy is yakking at him about, oh, I've looked for you for years and, you know, now I have you where I want you. And then Eli Wallach shoots him dead. And, and he says, and when you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Too many people talk. They talk about what they want to do. They talk about this. They talk about that. When you tell them to just go ahead and do it, they say, oh, well, it's going to be very difficult. Well, yeah, it's even more difficult if you don't start. You know, you have to do it. You know, you you just have to get out there and do it to see if you have anything valid to say in the medium of motion pictures. And that's what the fear is. I think in a lot of people is that if they actually try to do something, they'll find out that they don't have it or that they can't or whatever it is. But, you know, like I said, in in the DGA, you know, what Yoda said, do or do not, there is no try, you know, at some point you have to step up and do what it is that you say is the most important thing in your life to do, you know? And the other thing I always uh, tell people, and you heard this at at the seminar is, is you really have to love the job interview process because the job interview is the best thing in the world. It's my favorite thing to do is, is interview for a job because it's the only time that project is perfect. You don't have to worry about budget schedules, you know, equipment, whatever. It's the only time that job is perfect. And people are always worried about the job interview. And I say, you know, the time to worry is after you get the job, because then you actually have to do it, but not the job interview. The job interview is your time to play. And they're only trying to figure out two things from you in the job interview. You know, if they like you and if they trust you, that's it. That's it. That's all they are looking to know. You know, you don't have to tell them you recite your resume because they have your resume in front of them on a piece of paper. You know, so, you know, everybody just needs to to chill out and give them a sense of who you are and what drives your passion. You know, when they ask you that first simple question, you know, so what have you been up to? Tell them something that you've been doing that means something to you. It may be that that you went with your kid on a hike on this new trail or whatever. That's going to be far more interesting than saying, well, I I worked as as an assistant on this or I did a production assistant job on that. Tell them something about you and don't read the room. Don't, Don't try to tell people what you think they want to hear because they know you're lying. Mm. And and then they think that you don't actually have original creative ideas of your own. So don't read the room. Jeez. So not only did you drop like six or seven bombs in about two and a half minutes, but you also quoted Yoda. I'm toast. Yoda's, Yoda's great. Yoda's got a lot of good quotes and the art director's guild has a really great quote. 
that people should remember. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing because it's really easy to forget the point of doing anything when you get yourself into the chaos of production. And if you start to forget the point of doing something, you will lose track of the entire project. So the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Mm. I think that just applies to everything. (laughs) It does. Wow. I mean, on that, I have literally nothing left in my soul. So, you know... I mean, this has been so great, Michael. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking to us and just being such an awesome mentor because now you're my mentor. (laughs) Asia, Jen, it's my pleasure. It's really, really has been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. What can we say about Michael? Girl, I have notes. Like I start, I can't. First of all, once again, I hope you fast forwarded to now and did not listen to the episode because I was a total geek, but the gems, I try to take notes and I just have a full page of notes of gems that he dropped, just quotes and words of wisdom for the ages. Yeah. It's again, Michael's someone who we work in the same business and we have this thing where, and I think it also is you know, it's sort of the lifestyle of what capitalism has created, where it's like, especially in the United States, we live to work. Like, that's just what we do. We love to do it. We live to work. It's all about the grind and the hustle and the, you know, how, how much can you do? How little time? That sort of thing. And seeing someone so successful have such a balanced view of what life work balance should be was very, very inspiring. Absolutely. Um, We are doing a bonus episode that will be behind the paywall for our patrons. uh, And we'll talk a little bit about work-life balance and how we incorporate it or don't incorporate it into our own lives. (laughs) Exactly. And this was just an episode where I think it just speaks for itself. You know, go back, listen, take all the notes and try and instill it in your life because it's, so good to figure out what is important, what you should be focusing on. And sometimes, you know, say no to the job, you know, mm-hmm. you don't always have to say yes to the job. It's not always about your quote unquote career. You know, there is life also, and it's important to see how best to develop that and grow a good life before you become, you know, knee deep in career goals and stuff. But Folks, we're going to see you next week. We'll have Jen in sunny California. And we'll see better anymore. (laughs) We'll see what she's up to there. I cannot wait to see the inside of her new apartment. And we'll see where I'm at. I might be doing something new. We'll talk about it on the flip side. Thanks so much for always being here for us and listening in. And we can't wait to update you on our little non-traditional journey. Love you guys. Bye. Non-traditional is produced and edited by me, Anastasia. And our theme song is Wildfire by Esabalu. And you can find it wherever you purchase music. You can find us on Instagram at non, that's N-O-N-E underscore traditional. And Twitter at traditional pod. 
Subscribe to our newsletter on our website and keep up to date on all things non-traditional. Oh, 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 oh,